So this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. Welcome to Feature Creep, colon. <laughs> Built-in microwave, semicolon. Uh, hashtag Dungeon 23. That's I think that's what we're going to talk about. Hashtag Dungeon 23. Um, also, a little housekeeping. So we've definitely been lax on uh, getting our, our episodes posted. We've definitely recorded plenty. Um, we have a huge... <laughs> we've recorded a ton. We just haven't shared them with you. <laughs> yeah. So um, hopefully we'll get our back catalog filled out in the next coming week. Um, this should be, you should be listening to this, uh, on a Monday, which I believe will be, um, this next coming Monday, which is the 30th. Monday the 30th. Yeah. Hopefully you're listening to this on the 30th and nothing terrible has happened and we, we were able to get this all done. But, um, anyway, uh, upward and onward. So, um, this is a story Meg, that I want to tell you yeah. about that um, it has a crossover <laughs> with something that you and I sh- hold dearly, um, okay. which is the Hobonichi. Oh! So, um, and one of the reasons that I found out about this, uh, this is this weird crossing between two of my, like, two sort of hobbies or loves of my life, yeah. right? So, um, the... Do you want to tell our listeners? I mean, people probably know what a hobonichi is at this point, but if you do not, maybe, maybe, maybe not. there's <laughs> there's less than a million of us, but creeping towards a million of us yeah. on the face of the planet who have become devotees of a particular planner yes. called a hobonichi. Well, yeah. hobonichi is the company, and it produces multiple different types of planners. Ned and I use slightly different planners. He uses ones that are broken up mm-hmm. in the in the year, and I use one that. C- encapsulates the entire year in a single book and then lists out the months and weeks and days in multiple different formats which leads to some redundancy when scheduling things but also is really like helpful for conceptualizing like (laughs) space-time yes Um, yeah it definitely is and i've noticed um i think one of the things like we've talked about before where i like you know one of the things i struggle with is visualizing time and yeah um this year uh i kind of recommitted myself to opening my hobonichi every day and trying to like put a little entry in there um ah you so you're like diarying or journaling yeah a little bit like it's sort Mm -hmm. of um i've I've tried to kind of back off with like strict rules about how i should use it like having a lot of intent of like oh i'm gonna schedule my whole day in here and do all these things and like rather than doing that making it someplace where it's like nope i'm just gonna look at the time as it goes by and i'm gonna leave little marks um, huh. you know, and kind of let that be a little more natural for the way my brain works. Um, yes. and thankfully, like I don't, I, I make good use of Google calendar at the moment, but a digital calendar that is very timely in terms of like reminding me of when things need to happen. And I'm pretty good about using that. Um, mm-hmm. so for me, but the thing that I don't like about that is that it doesn't give me a sense of time. It uh-huh. more just gives me a sense of like, smack it's time to do a thing <laughs> like which is a little oh, shit. yeah which is a little different from my hobonichi experience where it's like where i i allow myself to do whatever i want like one day i have um 
like a couple days ago, I got some new paint pens or some, they're not paint pens, they're brush pens. And I just like marked all over the page because I just was like, oh, these are fun pens and like tried writing. Are they Tombow pens? They are not. They are. Oh, um, that's what I'm writing with right now. It has a brush tip and I use it in my Hobonichi. Oh, that's, I will have to try those. Those were on my list of things to try. The ones I have are some Pentel ones and also some random refillable like brush pen that's kind of like mm. a kind of like a um fountain pen but okay anyway sidetrack yeah. um getting back on topic so <laughs> how so the the hobonichi is uh one of the reasons we really like it is it has this really thin paper that yeah. is um really smooth and strong and takes ink well and considering how thin it is ink doesn't bleed through it too much i mean yeah. you can definitely do it like if you have a very inky pen and you're very heavy-handed um, you can get ink to bleed through it. But um, I think you and I both typically use those lay pens, which are kind of like a technical pen. Um, yeah. They kind of have a technical pen point, like a little tiny little nib. Um, yeah. But Yeah, they're they're not brush tipped like the Tombos or the ones you were talking about. They're like, um, they have like a hard little tiny, like, is it like 0.5 millimeters? Yeah, it's, it's very, than that. it feels like, it's kind of like, um, like a hard little tip of plastic that's just sort of mm-hmm. ink, ink flows through. Um, yeah, I had I had some like that when I was a kid because my aunt lived. Where did she live? Was she in Japan for a while? She was in Singapore. Anyways, she used to bring back all this like Sanrio stuff for me, yeah. but from like over in Asia, so it was different from the American market. And she would always bring me these pens, and they always had tips like the Le Pen. And I, w- as a kid, I was just like. <laughs> And just it destroy would destroy it. them immediately yes, because right. I had no finesse. You know, mm-hmm. I still don't. Right. <laughs> That's why I have the brush pen in front of me right now. <laughs> uh, um, I try. I keep those le pens around, and I use them all the time, like yeah. you do in the Homonichi, because they are perfect. Um, like they're the width of the ink coming out of the nib is the perfect width to complement the the grid on the yes. actual paper of the Hobonichi. So it's like, it all fits together visually. It looks really great. But yeah. over time, I definitely like uh-huh. crunch those in, especially if I've had like caffeine to drink or something. Oh, yeah. If I have caffeine, you can't recognize my handwriting is mine. It's like I've been taken over by a crazy person. I might, I mean, mine too. Like I, I would say, I think you can still recognize my handwriting. It's just overly exaggerated and how bad it Ugh. is because like mine, mine is like yeah no nah, mine non, not uniform at all and i usually write in almost like architectural writing, yes like no, you see on a blueprint or something perfect little printing yeah yeah um, and i write in all caps most of the time yeah and in fact if i write in like script it's to emphasize something like italics and font mm-hmm, right yeah. but like if i have caffeine i might i bet if i had caffeine yeah how my handwriting in my right hand looks when i have caffeine is worse than when i have not had caffeine and i'm uh, writing, writing with my left, left hand, hand. Yes. <laughs> my left hand is pretty legible because i broke well i didn't break my thumb but i injured it really really badly on my right hand when i was remodeling my house oh, no. and so i had to write with my left hand for a really oh that's long right time. I remember you telling me about that yeah yeah okay so 
anyway, Hobonichi yeah. day planner. Um, it's right. got a bit of a like a cult following. Um, I think they're th- yes. they're more I like think seven hundred thousand people are using it now. Their their company worldwide. Yeah, so their company has started to recognize that they have international customers, so they're starting to make copies that are in English. So it's a Japanese company. Right. Um, the version that I use still doesn't have an English version. So the version I use is um, delightfully all in like uh, I think it's hiragana or katakana. I'm not sure, but it's in the Japanese. Um, it, it's written in Japanese, and so mm-hmm. uh, like almost none of it is legible for me. Except it doesn't really matter because a calendar is a calendar, and the day the numbers are the numbers. And right. so when I look at it, the weeks and the numbers and everything just makes sense. And there's it's it's trivial. Like I just don't think about it. And they do have yeah, same. Yeah. Same. So it was trivial to me when I had this is the first year, the 2023 Hobonichi Cousin, which is the full size large single book. Yeah. Um, this is the first year that they've published it in English. And I have to say, like, it's a little weird for me. Right. Because now you're like, oh, there's all this information that actually I liked just imagining what it was instead of. Right. They have these great little quotes. Like when you open up the planner, it's constructed in such a way that no matter where you are in the year, it lays flat yes. when you open it. Oh, it's they're so really, it's not like yeah lopsided. Um, and so whenever you have the book open, it just automatically flops open to view whichever facing pages you're on at the time. And on the bottoms of the facing pages, in the in the in the midsection of the book, mm-hmm. mid from the middle point to the end is where they dedicate an entire page to an entire day. And so, like, yesterday was January 24th, it's on the left, Mm -hmm. today is January 25th, it's on the right, and at the bottom, on the left, on January 24th, there's a quote. It says, it is a sad thing not to be needed by anyone, but it is also sad in a different way not to need anything from anyone. I think that needing is a part of being human. And then on the facing page, they say uh, who the quote is from, uh, Shigesato Itoi. A copywriter slash CEO at Hobonichi Company Limited. Um, there are also quotes, like there's quotes on every single facing mm-hmm. page from different people. It's not all just people who oh, work right, at Hobonichi. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> um, but I could never read these things before. And so I knew at the bottom of every page there were some like mysterious sort of like life lesson or philosophical tidbit right and the person who said it but i could never read it because it was in kanji the whole time and so i had no idea and like you said there the numbers are the same and then the days of the weeks and the months and all that other stuff just kind of like is extraneous because it's so intuitive and it is formatted yeah physically to represent either a day or a week at a time or a right, month at a time right. so it's like self-evident but yeah um it is kind of interesting to have all of these little these little things. Like there was a uh, Soichi Noguchi, who's an astronaut, has one in my on January 4th. Their quote is in here um, about taking an extra vehicular, um, what, whatever the A stands for, EVA. It's oh, extra vehicular uh, activity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When you go outside the spaceship and you're just like floating there in the middle of nowhere. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. So there's all these cool different like 
There's also little things I think in here about how people use the Hobonichi maybe. So other people who use Hobonichis are quoted talking about how, how they, they use it. it. Yeah, yeah. And this is like a big thing about the culture around Hobonichi. Like I know that other planners have cultures like Franklin Covey is religious, yes. I think. Yeah. And they they weird about Sundays. But like um, the culture of Hobonichi is that everybody uses their Hobonichi differently. Like they don't. Right. They kind of like just give it to you and say, do what you will. And so they oftentimes at their website and stuff will feature the artwork or stories with explanations and photographs of how people have used their Hobonichi. And like some people use them as sketchbooks and just ignore the um, the printing and the sort of like structure of it as superfluous, (laughs) which I think is great. Yeah. so yeah, how people use this book is like a whole thing, a whole thing. It's a whole rabbit hole. Yeah. So <laughs> I love seeing how other people use it. I I do too and I find it um it's it's really I've been I've been so grateful for you introducing this little this little tidbit in my life, right? Cuz I just <laughs> like over the years it's just been this my relation like for sure I'm a good example of like man, do I use mine differently every day? Like one day it's like I'm planning my day out. Another day it's like I said, it's just scribbles and like, like a little bit of watercolor splashed in there. And it's just like, it's like a two year old got, got at it with a crayon. Like, (laughs) um, and so, but it's nice like looking back because it's like some days are journal entries, some days are planning entries, some days are, like I said, a little more art based. Um, some days there's nothing. Some days it's something from a different day. And I just put a little date saying like, oh, you know, I had a spare page here and I needed more room to write. Um, yeah. And I remember when I first met you, you had, you know, you were using yours to plan that project we were working on. And yes. Um, and it was just like, you know, like just with you all the time, completely yeah. like worn and used and loved and like and i remember we were taking notes at some seminar or something and um i remember just having this like low-grade anxiety about the fact that you were writing on days that weren't the day that we were on (laughs) yeah like i have this internal reference system where like i so now i think i'm on my fifth hobo nietzsche Mm -hmm. because i think the first one i got was 2017 so 17 18 19 20 21 22 okay that's six. Yeah, that's six. Yeah. This is my sixth one. Yeah. So I, I, I even counted on my fingers and I had to count twice. <laughs> I had six fingers up and I was like, wait, was right. that right? Um, so yeah, this is my sixth one. Um, I, in a lot of them, like whatever's happening that day or whatever, I'll write down and just use the day I'm on. But sometimes if I'm going to like write down something extensive, yeah. I'll like search for days where I either didn't write anything down or not much was happening. And I have like two pages next to each other adjacent that are like blank. So I can just write across the seam in the center mm-hmm. and like use the full two page spread. And so whenever I like I'll draw like recipes, I'll I'll put rest. I'll write the words for recipes, but also I draw like little pictures because it makes more sense to see something dumping into a bowl than it does like combine all the following in like words. And I, I, when I think of recipe ingredients, I think of them as entities rather than like things with a label on them. I don't know, whatever. This is the whole point of the Hobonichi, right? Like, yep. however you process information, you can put it in here and then right. you reference it later. And so if I have to go back and look at something, I will reference like Hobonichis from years back, like see January 4th of 2017. Oh, yeah. Right. Or whatever. And it's got its own like it's a it's basically a built in table of contents because every page has a unique thing about it. You can just go back and reference it because it's in series. And so it's like, right, right. Oh, that's fantastic. So I have like 
they they talk about like when you're done with your hobo Nietzsche for the year, you can look back and like see a year of somebody's life mm-hmm. just there. Right. And so they call it the life book. The hobo Nietzsche company calls it their life book. And um, so now I have like six, well, five full life books plus a sixth one on the way, which is hilarious because yeah. I never intended to like necessarily sit down and write books. Look, we've written so many books by accident. <laughs> right. <laughs> We have to publish our fucking book. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so on that note, uh, we yeah. are, we have actually made some progress and I've, I've pinned Chris down a bit on it. So, um, and it's not his fault, but we just, no, it's it, totally not. Um, yeah, we've got ISBN numbers. We've got, uh, we've got Chris on the hook to integrate the ISBN number on the cover and then we're, we're there. So I, oh, did he say he would do it? Oh yeah. No, he, I talked to him. He's very much in, in favor of doing it he's very excited about it he's just also like me um this year has been rough with work and the year just started so yeah um anyway uh i want to get on the topic of so this intersection right so we've talked about dungeons and dragons and role-playing games before yeah um and i want to also just make a footnote that um there is a insane thing going on with wizards of the coast i don't know if we've talked about this the um, the wizard of the coast hasbro licensing bullshit um anyway they oh. they've made a huge money grab and they may have actually basically killed the dnd franchise um in this iteration as of now but we'll we'll talk about that later yeah um anyway this doesn't matter if you uh play dungeon if you only passingly know what dungeons and dragons are all you really need to know is that there are lots of different takes on the concept of that role-playing game of pen and paper role-playing um and lots of people play different games and lots of people create really wonderful content for it and share it and there's this huge vibrant community of people who are playing games together sharing information together um recently i learned about how there's a whole solo play community where people play pen and paper games with themselves and they just create their it's sort of like imagine if you played choose your own adventure game uh books Mm -hmm. imagine that but like on a whole nother level of like you know um keeping track of things on on pen with pencil or pen and paper yeah. Um, rolling dice to introduce randomness, telling a story yourself, um, you know, reading resource books, just this whole world that would be a whole interesting podcast in and of itself. But where we get together on the Hobo Nietzsche <laughs> and Dungeons and, and Dragons. And the D&D. And the D&D, yes. Um, God, talk about Barry the Lead, I'm the worst. Well, I mentioned Dungeon 23, <laughs> so I'm pretty sure uh, people could like look this up at this point. Um, but <laughs> anyway. Google what we're saying. This this person uh named Sean McCoy which I don't know very much about but he was a uh he is a game designer um he actually designed a particular RPG that was called Mothership um and a couple other ones and he's uh anyway so he's been a big okay. active member of this sort of RPG tabletop role playing game community pen and paper etc um yep. so on December 5th, he just sent out a tweet saying, hey, here's an idea. And the tweet is this, Mega Dungeon for 2023, 12 levels, 365 rooms, one room a day, <gasps> keep it all in a journal. Let's do this. Cool. And he just kind of shared this, I think, with a friend of his, um, but kind of publicly. And it really took off. People were like, oh, my God, I love this idea. And um, and so it's it's real loose concept, right? The, the at the heart of it, the idea is just like every day you create a little bit of content 
for this mega dungeon or whatever you want to do, whatever you want to call it, I already immediately was like, oh, I'm going to do islands in the ocean or I'm going to do um, houses, you know, buildings in a city. Like, and people have already, yeah. you know, people have already spun off on this a lot. There was a lot of discussion um, and it really excited the community about everybody participating and creating content and sharing it. Now, where, when you say community, where is the community? Like, obviously it's distributed because people all yep, over fucking across. kingdom come play this game, but like, do they yeah. congregate in an online space? There are uh, lots of online spaces. So Twitter, okay. um, any kind of social media. Uh, Reddit has its own um, subforum called r slash dungeon 23. Um, okay. That's where I've been. That's the community I've found and connected with the best. And I've been kind of posting my daily pictures in there um, and trying to kind of participate in, in that level because I – I started on Twitter and I just was like, this is not, uh, Twitter's a mess. Like it's really hard to Twitter's navigate horrific. and organize and, um, and Reddit's a little more like I can put all of my thoughts on a page and I can type them out and I can post a photo and then yep. other people can reply and they're all kind of collected there and it's not quite as, um, sort of loosely connected the way Twitter is. Cause Twitter, Twitter does that kind of threading and stuff, but it, it's, it's a little too messy for me. So um, also like it's just a bigger community of random people and, and the mm -hmm. uh, anyway, I don't know. I've only been doing it about a week on the Reddit thing. So we'll find okay. out. But um, but what I have been doing is every day writing in my. Oh, so where does this connect with the Hobonichi? So. Right. Um, so Sean, uh, Sean McCoy suggested in his example he's using a version of the hobonichi calendar that is the weekly calendar and so on the weekly calendar it's long and skinny kind of like a pencil case okay um and in it on the left side are the seven days um kind of broken down in rows so like yep. you know monday to sunday and there's like three or four lines for each day and then on the okay. right is um a big open uh, sort of piece of graph paper. And so uh, the this is his idea is that each week you add a new room on the right and on the uh -huh. left you fill out a little description or some notes about what's happening in that room. Um, okay. And so in, in his example, each week you have seven rooms that make up a level and then at the end of the month you've got um you know roughly four weeks collected of of these levels um now it's you know whatever it's it's really loose and you can <laughs> you can do whatever you want and lots of people have yeah. been doing whatever they want and it's been really fascinating because for some people it's much more of a writing exercise the drawing rooms is less exciting to them they're much more interested in writing sort of descriptions of dungeon rooms and kind of doing sure. a short description every day as a writing practice to just kind of like get in the headspace of this and some people are like well i don't really like the the high fantasy idea of dungeons um you know, like elves and goblins and monsters and wizards and dragons and whatever. Um, and so some people are like, oh, I'm doing more of a cyberpunk theme or I'm doing more of like a, you know, a low fantasy where it's just like gritty, you know, might and might and warriors and, you know, cold steel and whatever. And, you know, right. mucking through the mud and fighting in castles and, you know, so it's all over the place. And that's that's like the wonderful thing about it is like if you so you can go on Twitter and you can do the search for the hashtag Dungeon 23 or you can go on Reddit and search for Dungeon 23 and you can pull up and see 
all of the like the work that people are doing. Um, and I just find it really fascinating because some people are really much more into it. Like they just do these beautiful like sketches of artwork, I think, like these sort of yeah. isometric dungeons. Um, you were actually looking through some of it and you, you found some that you liked. Yeah. So I was on our slash dungeon 23 and I, I like the at the header. It says building adventure one day at a time. Yeah. Um, so like when I scroll down, the first image that is available to me is it looks like a blueprint. Um, like an overhead two-dimensional blueprint of a dungeon with like numbered rooms or sections and like mm -hmm. the grid and everything, um, which was obviously digitally generated. And then there's like some that are are photographs of people's sketchbooks, which reminds me so much of like what you showed me of your stuff. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and then I see also um, like drawings of of the individual rooms themselves for example like the pit of pink tentacles nice that sounds great yeah. um the ossuary which is kind of like this particular drawing rather than being two-dimensional straight overhead like at a 90 degree angle is more like angled so you're looking down and into the distance at the same time and so there's like a perspective and there's they, they have like all of these walls drawn in that are made out of skulls it's yeah. great tons and tons of little skulls yeah um there's old camp which is headed by a caption that says journey to the center of sinkhole colon old camp and I, like there's just all they all look the same they all they all look like they're meant for dungeons and dragons facilitation yes. but they're all completely different in terms of the aesthetic and right. the way that they're drawn uh, whether or not they've been digitally generated like like so cool <laughs> so cool here's one of a panopticon style like prison um here's the village of something omen i can't read it cuz it's too tiny I think it might say Apple Omen or something. Um, very cool. Just here's one with a giant spider suspended over this dungeon that has like a series of staircases leading up to it. Is that the room 23? Uh, room 25. Room 25. Yes. That um, that particular artist I've been really following along like very cool. Um, yeah. The room 25. Like it's so. uh their their artwork you can see there's numbers 22 23 25 mm -hmm. i think i don't see 24 on that picture but um this is just a a little snippet of their overall dungeon and somewhere we can uh -huh. later look and find but um yeah it's it's that isometric style that uh is really effective and it has this like creepy spider in spider webs and like yeah. a crumbling column and and rickety staircases or sort of yeah it has kind of like an almost like an mc escher quality to yes. it with all the weird staircases going everywhere and yeah it's very cool um oh here's another architectural one the nest of the arachna kids which just sounds really fun and cute yeah um, it's it's very um I one of somebody go ahead go ahead no go I ahead. was gonna say one of the things I really like about it is like everybody has their own idea of what an adventure is and what yeah. kind of flavoring um, how to flesh it out how to flesh it out exactly uh, one thing that you asked about um, and one of the reasons you were like let's just hit record uh, yeah. you were asking about how one might play 
on these game boards, so to speak. Right. For example, when you roll your dice on a Monopoly board, every number that comes up on the dice means you progress one space on the board. But like, are there spaces in Dungeons and Dragons? So um, what you bring up is a complicated question to answer, <laughs> which is good. Um, so depending on the rule system you're using now in Dungeons and Dragons, there's commonly like basically version version three and five are the most common, although there's a resurgence of version two and version one. Um, four is not very commonly played because it was the way it was written was really designed for like a computer game almost that was never quite implemented. Um, so it, it's a little, it's like, it's, it can be a lot of like housekeeping, like a lot of paperwork to kind of do it by hand. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, but movement. So yeah. in role-playing games, depending on the game and what everybody agrees to at the table, uh-huh. um, or basically everybody who's participating, usually I like to think of it as an agreement. Um, some people p- play the game master, the referee or the dungeon master. They just kind of like what they say is go goes, which is mm-hmm. its own kind of agreement that we've all agreed to. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah, I, I agree to that because I'm playing your game. <laughs> right. But generally speaking, in the good games, everybody has a little bit of like before we play, we're all going to kind of reach a consensus about the general concept of rules and what's considered fair and how the game world works. Um, Mm -hmm. And so in that time is one of the things is often like, how are we going to handle movement? Um, So movement typically in the games that I've played, um, we rely heavily on the idea of what's called the theater of the mind, which is to say we don't have any board that we're playing on. Um, we just kind of talk about describing scenes. We describe like where people might be standing. So you might say, you know, there's a part, a party of players. So like if you and I and Lauren were playing um, and then Damon was the the dungeon master or the game master, he might say, okay, you're all, um, you know, the classic cliche of like you all are sitting in a tavern at a table and um, you know, drinking your, your mugs of mead and discussing, you know, last night's adventure. And that's mm-hmm. it. And then we're kind of left to imagine like, well, there's probably a fireplace and there's probably like, you know, some other people in the tavern who are sitting at other tables or standing around right. talking. Or maybe there's, um, you know, some kind of musician or bard in the corner who's strumming a tune on a lute. Um, you know, and those things are things that we might as a group contribute to the story. Like if I were going to like add some more flavor, I would say like, oh, I'm, you know, okay, I'm going to sit idly and kind of sink into my beer while I listen to the music of the bard. And, Uh you know, Damon might be like, okay, yes, there's also a bard because that doesn't conflict with a overall story that he's working on or he might be like okay well there's no bard but so he um, kind of has like veto and steering power but yeah a little bit i mean the idea is like you know a really good game is that everybody's sort of like invested in the story and the characters and the 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 referee i like i like the term referee because they're there to help moderate and make sure that like things are fun and help people get more drawn into the story and the experience sure and lots of people play for different reasons some people like to play for um, a more rigid rule structure, in which case something like that might be a little less that way and a lot more. And this is where movement gets in. Like they might play a lot more on maps all the time, which is to say having um, like miniature figurines and terrain pieces that sit on a board. Um, oh, like that a would grid. be very exciting. And so yeah. um, there are lots of formal and informal rules in different systems to how that works. I think traditionally in Dungeons and Dragons, um, 
oftentimes it's played on a grid, like a, um, you know, like a graph paper sort of yes. a grid with, uh, with each square being um, like one inch squares being equivalent to either five feet or 10 feet in the, in the, in the game world. Oh, and so then, interesting. And so then there's rules about how far a, a character or creature can move based on their movement. So a particularly fast creature might have a fast movement. Like it might say, um, and usually movement is determined by round. In Dungeons and Dragons, they use rounds, and rounds is usually considered about six seconds. Um, and so like if we were standing in a room and there was a tortoise and a hare and the hare mm -hmm. might move at like 45 feet per round and the tortoise might move at a maximum feet or maximum rate of like 10 feet per round. Um, I mean, that's still pretty insane, right? Like six seconds yeah. a tortoise is not going to go 10 feet. But, um, but you get my point is that, that now when it comes time to move a character or player token, um, you're following these rules. And so each system has different rules. Um, yep. Typically in Dungeons and Dragons or similar con like similar game systems, when you're playing that particular, uh, when you're enforcing that kind of movement rule is when you're in sort of turn-based combat or turn-based play, which is to okay. say now it matters who goes first. It matters how far people move. Everything matters as opposed to we're sitting in the bar and I walk over and order another round of drinks for my, my friends. Like mm -hmm. we don't need to play out whether the bar is 30 feet away from the table and whether I can get there in six seconds or 12 seconds, we can just kind of tell the story that like Ned's Ned's character walked over and got the round of beer. Meanwhile, um, you know, you and Lauren, your characters continue to discuss, you know, the day's earnings or whatever. Like, yeah, it's sort of like in that case, like movement is sort of story story time versus um like when we're in combat or where something matters. So like now a third entity has entered the bar and called us out and said, you there, stop. The town guard has discovered that we stole the, you know, the princess's jewel or something like that. And now mm -hmm. the town guard has showed up and now we all, um, then different rule systems have different ways of resolving this, but ultimately somehow turns are determined typically if it's turn-based. Um, yeah. And then each person now is placed on a grid where we say, okay, like you're so far away from so-and-so. You can still do this in the theater of the mind where a good DM or a good dungeon master or uh, referee will say establish distances. Like say, okay, the guards are 45 feet away, which means that we can't get to them in one round but okay. we might be able to reach them with ranged weapons or for sure they can probably hear us and the and the the referee is going to determine that and then say okay like what actions do you take given that you can only move a maximum of 30 feet from where you are etc cetera, etc cetera. and you can mm -hmm. either do that in a detailed way on a map which some people enjoy or you can just kind of do it in the theater of the man mind, which other people also enjoy. And sometimes a little bit of a blend of that, depending on what's at stake and how we want to resolve this this particular conflict. That's so interesting. Yeah. So, like, it's interesting because, like, depending on what's happening in the game, how you play the game changes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, you, can, um, you can think of it as states. And in a good, well-oiled group that have been playing together for a long time, um, these transitions are very easy. Um, I think that uh, one of the... One of the advantages of having really clear rules, and I think one of the reasons that fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons really kind of took off compared to some of the other editions, is that they were, um, it really kind of 
streamlined a lot of this and kind of made that transition from different states a lot easier. It it really reduced the number of like sort of mental gymnastics one had to do in order to kind of maintain the game state in everybody's minds. And so it sure. became it became easier to all have agreement on what should and how things work in the world. Um that's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. And and it's really fascinating, like reading that I have some of the very early editions um, of Dungeons and Dragons and reading some of the early editions, like it's just gonzo, like how off the wall the rules can be. Um, you know, it's like, what might, do you suppose accounts for that? Like, why was it so weird long ago? Well, it, because it came from it came from a space of like, like, historically, um, Dave Arneson and Guy, Gary Gygax, like they wrote this game with the like they came from a wargaming group a tabletop wargaming group where it was like mm -hmm. people reenacting battle scenes and painting miniatures From history yeah as a yeah. hobby like as history right. or even just sort of make-believe where it's like oh but all the troops and things were very like historical real world accounts generally speaking there wasn't a lot of like um like for sure there wasn't magic and other high fantasy stuff and they mm -hmm. were like, oh, well, they kind of evolved this thing into, and I'm a little weak on the history of this, but essentially they were like, oh, well, we could take a lot of those concepts and make this other game where we can, you know, fight monsters and we can have more individual hero characters. And um, and even the early versions of Dungeons and Dragons are not quite as hero-based. Like oftentimes people play multiple characters or oftentimes you have your main character, but like lots of other player are other kind of entities that you're also in charge of and you're still kind of moving in groups and a lot of the early day stuff was um the dungeons and dragons were almost supplements to existing war game environments and mm -hmm. so the early the early games or the early rule sets like just eschew description of any kind when it comes to actual combat other than like here's sort of unit detail of like how damage is done but this idea of movement and stuff, I think they made a lot of assumptions. They're like, well, the only people playing this are other people who do war games and they are we already ah. understand like how movement works and what it means to position a you know, your miniature on a table and have combat interactions, et cetera. Sure. Um sure. Yeah. So that that and then I think kind of as it evolved, it became more um like all of this is an attempt to simulate a virtual world in your mind, right? That people mm -hmm. can kind of play with keeping track on pen and paper and their imaginations, which is a wonderful exercise and super fun, especially if you like the people that you're playing with um, or, yeah. or at least you enjoy their imagination. Like, you know, I mean, uh, everybody's very individual and has depths. So um, anyway, that's it's, very cool. Yeah, it's a it's, really it's a pretty cool thing um, for sure. I think it's something that everybody might enjoy at some point if they have opportunity. Uh, have you, how many different like games have you run before? Like, are you still playing with the same people you've always played with or are you playing with like different groups of people? Um, I, so currently I've just been kind of fall back on the people that I typically, I actually originally played with in high school. Um, and there's some new people that I mean we've been playing basically pretty consistently for. Is about it the same game that you've been years. playing this whole time? No. Or are you? No. Okay. No. We move. We um, for the most part, I've played. I've only played two versions with them. When I was in high school, we played second edition for the most part, um, or advanced Dungeons and Dragons second edition. Mm -hmm. And then um, in, I think we played a little bit of. So a different role playing game was White Wolf 
is a company that came out with the Vampire of the Masquerade. And yes, I'm familiar with that one. Yeah, so we played a little bit of that, I think, and some other games. Um, but for the most part, yeah, we put we have not been running the same campaign um, indefinitely. Like typically, what happens is somebody becomes the dungeon master, becomes the referee, um, has some story they want to tell or some game world that they want to try out and play for a while. And we usually kind of play through it. Um, and then, you know, and then somebody else kind of picks up. And so, um, lately I've not, I was running a campaign a couple, uh, I think last year, um, uh, right during the middle of COVID, I was running a campaign for quite a while. That was, um, pretty fun. I enjoyed doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, um, I had to, I think I went to Germany or something. And so they all agreed that while I was gone, they were going to start a different campaign, which was great. So when I came back, I joined that campaign um, mm -hmm. and I've been playing with them. And then occasionally I do, um, like sort of one-off campaigns. Like when, when our DM, when the person who's currently running it either doesn't have time to prep material for that week or whatever. Um, and so I kind of like pick up the slack and do that, which works out pretty well. And I enjoy That's it quite cool. a bit because I get to kind of try like, like new ideas that I have without having the commitment of being like, okay, like we're starting new characters and we're going to play for long, 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 long time. Um, you know, like over mm -hmm. a year or something like that. Um, people yeah. play, people play over multiple years. I think we've definitely had campaigns that have gone over a couple of years. Um, I, as I get older, I enjoy more and more. I kind of enjoy the, like the shorter compact story campaigns where it's like, you know, um, there's just kind of a particular world and move through it and then be done with it and start something fresh and new. Um, sure. But also, you know, uh, long, long unending campaigns can also be fun depending on, uh, how invested people are in, in you, the story. Do you have like a special, do you have like a, a favored or a preferred way of like telling the story when you're in charge? Like, is there something that you find yourself sort of like? Um, uh, like I, a format or like this a particular is a, type of story or this is a constant like reiteration for me. So mm -hmm. one of the things that I've learned over the years is that everybody is different in how they engage in role playing games or in tabletop role playing games. Okay. Um, some people are really there for the the flavor and the experience and they want good description and they want to like really be drawn into it some people mm -hmm. are much more interested in the the game mechanics and the progression of the story or the progression of their character and the way so uh role-playing games typically have this game mechanic where it's like you start at um you you start with a a fairly weak underpowered kind of character that okay. grows over time with ah. with the concept of like and when i say growth it's like they gain new powers and skills and abilities over time through exercising those billet abilities and powers in the world in sure. dungeons and dragons fifth edition one of the biggest gripes is that it's heavily geared towards what's called murder hoboism which is to say well, yes which we've talked about a little bit i think before yes this because i just love the idea of it. yeah so and i see i don't even play the game and i can see immediately how that is like a tendency <laughs> right so um it, in traditional dungeons and dragons the only way to progress a character is to so a character sheet or a character typically has stats like it's got six stats that um sort of are attributed to sort of mental and physical 
um, and sort Are of those social. Standard? They're standard. They're often okay. Dungeons and Dragons. I think is the original source of them. I don't want to mm. quote on that, but um, for sure, lots of systems <clears throat> use similar ones. Um, but uh, the basic concept is like you have this number that represents your strength and your wisdom and your intelligence and your your sort of charisma or your dexterity or your constitution, etc. And cool. so um, all of these stats in the game world have um, important effects. Like they allow – so if your character is like, I'm going to lift this stone – then if your strength is of a certain value, you might make a roll to determine whether you're able to lift the stone or not. Um, I see. Depending on the referee and the agreed upon rules, like how you want to resolve those sort of skill challenges, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, those stats don't change too much, although they do increase a little bit in fifth edition over as you level up, as you gain more, as your character gains experience. Um, and there's there's kind of two experience models in Dungeons and Dragons currently. There's the um, milestone model where it's just like the DM just decides and says, okay, now everybody is level two. Um, mm -hmm. Or there's the experience number model where it's like you've killed a certain number of creatures. And now you are, um, you know, now you get X number of experience points. And once you level get, up, once you get 500 experience points, you go to level two or whatever the number is. Um, Got it. Yeah. So, um, and so you can see how typically in Dungeons and Dragons, experience points are rewarded for killing shit. That's like the number one, like in the, in the manual, in the, in the literature, typically the way, um, experience values are typically given for monsters, right? So like a goblin okay. might be worth 10 XP or something like that. And so, you know, kill, kill 50 goblins and now you got 500 XP and now you've, so like the adventurers are itching to get their big old battle axe and run into the <laughs> goblin den and kill all the goblins so they can be level right. two. And so, um, so what that creates is this incentive, like characters are typically, or players are incentivized to play their characters in ways that are, get them lots of experience. It's like, go run off and kill shit in the hillside and look for more shit to kill and kill more <laughs> shit. Like, right. um, now there are other, like, so, but the other thing is like loot, right? So the other thing is you can get items that also increase abilities, whether they're magic items or just more powerful weapons or better armor or other tools of the trade, so to speak, like depending on the kind of character you're playing. Um, there are also goods that you want to collect and do or get a hold of. And typically the way that you find those is through treasure hordes by going and killing some, you know, killed some cave trolls. And in their cave, you found some old adventurer loot and now you have a better sword or you have a better shield or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can see that like it's heavily weighted towards this concept of move around the world and kill shit. Yes. Um, and, and typically, so when you're storytelling, yeah. you have to like actively counter counteract that uh, yeah i mean well you you don't have to you can just say yeah we all like to do this so that's what you we're gonna do yeah descend like into murderous chaos yeah like it's you know you can um you can tell a lot of like classic fantasy stories right where it's like the you know the goblin horde is plaguing the the villagers and eating all their pumpkins out of their pumpkin patch or whatever and the heroes <laughs> come into town and they've been commissioned by the mayor to go route the goblins out of their caves in the hillside right and uh -huh. so now you have your adventure and you run off and you know the party goes and and then you play out all those rules and you have those encounters and you know you you're in the darkness of the cave and you're beset by you know 10 goblins and now you know now everybody has to do turn-based combat and we you know 
know, see how that plays out. People test their test their character builds and learn about how their characters work and, you know, some losses and some gains and and on we go. And so a lot of that is this sort of classic dungeon delving, grindy kind of you know, environment that lots of people enjoy. And then, and Dungeons and Dragons yeah. is absolutely like at the heart of it. That's like a very classic gameplay model that I think a lot of people can enjoy and you can add flavor to it. But the, at the heart of it, it's that kind of cliche of like, you know, the heroes don't live in this town. They're hobos. They just fucking moving through town and they've been assigned, you know, a task today. And that task is always murder. Right. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, oh, our beautiful town has been beset by some crazy calamity. And look, some murderous strangers just showed up to solve that problem for us. How convenient. Right. right. So, um, I, but I think, you know, a good a good game master and a good adventure uh, framework can make that a lot of fun and can add in flavors where it's like, you know, it's not always about murder. Sometimes it's about solving puzzles in the dungeon <laughs> or exploration. So exploration is another big part of it. Um, that I so find, if you have you know, puzzles, do you have to come up with a puzzle for people to crack then? Um, yeah. Well, so as a game master or as a as a referee, like you're you're kind of yeah. it's on you to play the rest of the world. The, the players, like if you were a player and I was a dungeon master, your job is to play your character and interact and ask questions about the world. My job is to tell you the answers to that world and tell you what's there. So um a good a good adventure so lots of and this is where we get to the heart of this sort of dungeon 23 which is the idea of creating this kind of content this playable content right. like if you if you are interested in doing this same there people are calling it a challenge but it this is much more i would say like a mostly very friendly open community that you can dip into and out of like there's no reward for doing all 365 days Right. You know, like, uh, well, the reward. going to give you a prize. Yeah. Like, no one's, it's, there's no prize. And if there is, like, you know, did you do 30 of them or did you forget to do five or did you do 400? Like, it's at the end of the day, like, the reward is in doing it. So if you want to do it for a month and just call it the, the month challenge or you want to do it for a week or yeah. just do one day or just hop on and give your thoughts and like live in the world that other people are doing and talk about that. All great. But my point right. is, <laughs> this the exercise of this is to create that kind of content and create those kinds of adventures. And so um, lots of very talented people have written and created lots of adventure. Usually they're called modules and Dungeons and Dragons, mm -hmm. but basically um, collections of literature about how, you know, about environment and world and theme and monsters and things to fight and things to do and puzzles yeah. and kinds of traps. And there's a huge amount of um third party content like and this is where um the thing with the wizards of the coast kind of ah, shooting yes. up so they uh i think since third edition uh before wizards of the coast was bought by hasbro and i'm gonna not do this a very good service like if you're interested in this particular <laughs> aspect please by all means go online and read more about it but my understanding is that mm -hmm. um at the beginning of this year kind of the end of december uh so okay so more backers so way back in the day <laughs> yes. wizards of the coast bought the dungeons and dragons license i think from tsr which was the original publishing house um and they kind of mm -hmm. took it over and they they created third edition and third edition was really popular um and one of the things they did with that is they created something called the open gaming license which was this idea that 
it's an idea and a document. So the open gaming license was this supposedly irrevocable because that's what they said. They're like, our intention is for this to be irrevocable license for people to create third-party content that is compatible with Dungeons and Dragons. They Uh wanted to make, and what they did is they said, okay, like, first of all, something that I think is important to stress here is that game mechanics cannot be copyrighted. So there's Mm -hmm. no way to hold a copyright on the mechanics of Dungeons and Dragons. You can't say that rolling initiative or rolling a six-sided die to figure out, you know, damage from a, a, you know, a sword or something is uh, is copyrighted and no one else can use this. Um, yeah. As far as I know, and all of the resources I've read suggest that basically game mechanics are, you just can't hold a, you can't hold a license to this. Monopoly, for instance, you can't hold a, mono- you can't hold a license um, or hold a, um, a copyright of the gameplay of Monopoly. You can hold a copyright on the name of the game and you can hold a copyright on iconic figures like the the monopoly man etc cetera, etc cetera. sure and that's what dungeons and dragons does now this open this open gaming license or ogl 1.0 or whatever they named it um really reiterated this it was like here's our mechanics we're going to put it in this document and mm-hmm. we're going to say that you can have an open gaming license, which is to say you can reference this document in your own game or in your own material free of charge. Like we're not going to, you know, we don't lay claim to it. Yeah. It's available. You don't um, have to pay royalties. You don't have to pay royalties, whatever. And I think this was like one of the best things they ever did because it created this massive following and this huge third party marketplace of material. Go ahead. And did you say that it was Wizards of the Coast who had this idea? Or, yeah, Wizards, and they, the, the, they, they were responsible for publishing At the time, that? the sort of leaders of Wizards of the Coast, and I, I don't know the details, but there were people who, sure, you know, and, and so they were like, yep, we're going to do this. And I think it was like the reason their company got so big. Okay. They were able to, and one of the reasons, and this bears out because when they, so they came out with third edition and then 3.5, all of these under the open GL, the OGL. The open gaming license, um, lots of third-party content. People were very engaged with the game because they were very excited because they could play games, create, have a successful game. Like, so if I, you know, played a game with my friends and like we really liked the content, we could work it up into a game module and say, "Hey, other people might be interested in this, and yeah. I might be able to get a little bit of money." There were these marketplace. There are still these marketplaces where you can. So it was pay. acceptable for people to make like third parties to make money using yeah, and sort say of you're compatible with their and, system. And yeah. and the wonderful thing about this is like for the most part, um, barring like a couple of like copyrighted concepts that they had like names like character names like so dungeons and dragons has like a couple franchises like um dragon lance was this like like these are kind of game world slash like so there were a bunch of they hired they did these really great things they hired these really good authors to write these dragon lance novels that were really Uh popular i read them they were really popular at the time when i was in high school um okay i mean for nerds yeah (laughs) i mean to be clear like it's not like you know (laughs) yeah you know, Jay Z slash Dragon Lance, like right up there. You know, but right. um, anyway, uh, but um, but anyway, they were really popular, well received. Um, these new worlds and concepts that these authors had dr- dreamed up became playable environments that people wanted to play in. Right. Um, so for in- so, what my point is, like, so like the Dragon Lance concept is 
is a sort of copyrighted name. And so the idea, like being able to use that and reference that directly in your own material and write, say, like fan fiction about it, so to speak, you mm -hmm. couldn't necessarily sell that and make money, right? Because it's yeah. now you're treading on somebody else's intellectual property as opposed to just using the mechanics of it. That's fine. Um, and that's what the OGL did. Is it just the open gaming license was like, yep, we already know this is true. So here, and then it also opened up some some basic things that had been tropes in, in Dungeons and Dragons that were owned by IP um, or had intellectual property rights assigned to them or associated with them that were maybe a little more gray area. Just made it really clear. So yeah. they did that, super great. And then uh, fourth yep. edition came along and they didn't use the OGL. I think they used something else. Oh. And fourth, edi fourth edition just kind of never really took off. It just wasn't, there was sure. lots of, there were some mechanical problems with it, with the game, I think. And I don't know that much about it. Like I, I played it a few times, I've got some of the books, but I, I was never like that involved. Um, there just wasn't that huge community around it because it wasn't mm -hmm. as accessible. So so fourth edition goes on, but third edition never kind of dies because people are like, well, we have <laughs> all this content. <laughs> yeah, it's the good one. And so then when they came out with fifth edition, they were like, went back to the OGL and oh my God, fifth edition has been the biggest edition ever. Like, uh -huh. good job. So, so <laughs> uh, Hasbro acquired um, Wizards of the Coast and I don't know when, but a, oh, a while ago now. Um, and for the are most part- Are they ruining part, everything? Well, yeah. So at the beginning of this year, one of their like top execs said uh, was like overheard in a talk in like some executive meeting or some kind of shareholders meeting that they basically they were like Dungeons and Dragons is super under monetized and we need to do something about it. And oh, what they no! did about it. So what they're trying to do with it is they tried to um, revoke the open the open gaming license that previously had been stated was unrevocable, Dicks. which is so. The thing about this is that I like the idea that like it's you, I don't know how you're I, I don't know how that's going to work. Like, I think they had this idea that they were going to basically what basically what they said was like, we're taking all the money now. And if you're a third party person who has been selling things under the OGL that stops now and you have to sign a new agreement that is draconian in its amount of money. Like it was like 25% of your earnings over, like if you make over $750,000 a year, which sounds like a lot, right? So like if you and I wrote a D&D module and sold it and we made $10,000, doesn't apply to us, right? Yeah. Except that if you're a company that attempts to, like re like but let's say the following year it was well received and we made $30,000 and now we're like okay we're going to take that money and we're going to build a company and we're going to get some other artist friends and some writers and we're going to like revamp this module and now we're going to put it out there and we've mm -hmm. all drawn a modest salary of like say $40,000 like between like 8 of us or something sure. now we're well over $750,000 but our but that's our net right and that's yeah. what they're taking their 20% from. And now yeah. they're taking like like multiple people's Ugh. salaries for no reason because they've just decided to. That's anyway, bullshit. I don't I I can't like do all of this justice. There's lots of people who have like just beat this to death on YouTube and on the internet and lots of articles. There's even an mm -hmm. article in The Motley Fool about how fucking dumb oh, this wow. shit is. Yeah, like it's kind of made it's made the news. I mean, so the upshot is, and also like their new <laughs> version, their new version also was like, it, it asked things like, or it basically stipulated that like, if you, um, 
write content for Dungeons and Dragons in any way, then we have um, basically unmitigated license to use it however we see fit, whenever we Ooh. want, like just in perpetuity. Like it was just fucking nuts. Um, just super hardcore. Uh, and so like the community reaction has been fantastic, which is that basically the stock for Hasbro is just tanked. Just like <laughs> within the last month, it's just like just crashing down. Um, their responses, like their after the community has just been like, fuck you. Um, their response has been like, oh, we fucked up. We really want to do better. And then they like they do like a modified version of their new their new agreement. And everybody's like, nope. Like that's just and it is like their modified agreements are just like like a lot of their stuff is like, well, we just wanted to be able to have more control over the content so we could protect people from bigotry oh, oh. and whatever blah 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 huh. and everybody's like no 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 you already had that what you wanted to do was get the money and everybody's like fuck this um right. so anyway i don't know how it will play out but people are leaving dungeons and dragons as a whole like in droves and looking at other new systems which i think is fantastic because they're wow. really great new systems that people have been um, coming up with and t yeah. play testing and are they on. similar to Dungeons and Dragons or are they like completely different? No, of? there's so there's fantastic different uh, like it, all over the place. So ah. there's uh, so speaking of um, tell me about these games. So speaking of Sean McCoy, who came up with the or who suggested the Dungeon Twenty Three, um, he came up with a uh, a role playing game called Mothership, which is a sci fi horror RPG. Sounds awesome. Yeah, it's um, it's really it's pretty cool. It's a uh, um. Speaking of space horror, did you watch the Expanse? Uh, most of it. I read the books. I have not <sighs> so read. Good. I have not watched okay. all of it yet. Yeah, I somewhere somewhere around season five, I got sidetracked, and it's been really hard for me to get back into it because every time I go to see what episode I've watched, I'm like, have I watched this one? I think I watched this one. You know, like it's just harder for me to get sucked into it because it's not quite yeah. as like. Like, I, you know, I'm like, oh, fuck, I got to go catch up on the story. But also I've seen some of this shit. Like, anyway, so I, I kind of broke myself on that a little bit. But anyway. Um, sidetracked. Sidetracked. So uh, Mothership is a, uh, I'm trying to see if I can find like a good synopsis of it. But um, it's space it, horror. It's a space horror themed. Um, and it has different takes on, um, I'm going to see if I can find like a good uh like a good synopsis i don't really see one but um <laughs> i i've read a little bit about it like so the all these games are really they they kind of revolve around the idea of like like simulating a universe right that you can interact mm -hmm. with it in and having rules to delineate like different roles that people play like and you know typically the typical format is sort of player and referee format so like one person is in charge of the story and the um, players are in charge of interacting in that world and participating okay. and um and i think this works pretty well there are there are for sure role-playing games where no one is the referee or everybody takes a turn being the referee so to speak like we all basically mm -hmm. agree that the rules work the way they work and we all are players and we you know do our part and the the story is just sort of revealed in different, there's different mechanics like some people like some games are kind of like deck based like there's a deck of cards and you kind of draw cards and create rooms or whatever and do things uh -huh. like there's just all kinds of different takes on this it's really really fascinating and some of them like it, what i'm trying to say is like 
there is a long gray area between say like monopoly and dungeons mm-hmm. and dragons and there are games everywhere in between like yeah from like very structured roll the dice move your piece to um completely story-based theater of the mind almost no mm-hmm. dice whatsoever just taking turns telling part of the story um yeah you know like that what's that game like that camp game where it's like you you say something like you say like a sentence and then someone else tells the rest of the story and it kind of goes around a circle i forget there's a name for that, oh but. i i mean i think th- is it called exquisite corpse I mean, sure, that's probably a version of it. That's one way. Exquisite Corpse is a way of storytelling where each person in series, like, tells a different part of the story to continue it. And so, like, I can't remember why it's called Exquisite Corpse, but it's something about building a Frankenstein. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, like, it used to be a party game where I have to Google what it, where the name Exquisite Corpse comes from. Um, But, yeah, it's like a compilation style game where everybody contributes to the end result, the body of work, the Mm -hmm. exquisite corpse, so to speak. Um, A game in which each participant takes turns writing or drawing on a sheet of paper, folding it to conceal his or her contribution, and then passing it to the next player for a further contribution. So in that game... Exquisite Corpse is listed at the uh, the MoMA.org website for reference. That's where I found it. Oh, fun. Um, And uh, if you... It says the game gained popularity in artistic circles during the 1920s when it was adopted as a technique by artists of the surrealist movement to generate collaborative compositions. And so in this case, everybody adding to the thing has no idea what came before them. And so they're only adding like a little piece of it with complete blindness to the sum total until the end it's it's revealed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's a, you know... Like my point is, is like there's just really the, the panoply of different options and things are it can be overwhelming. Um, I mean, I absolutely can recommend um, if you already know somebody who plays Dungeons and Dragons and they're running a game and willing to take you on, jump in for sure. Even mm, if it's mm-hmm. you know find out like like I said, there's some caveats of like people play very differently, and so part of the problem with a lot of these games and finding the right one for you is that. Um, even within a, even if there's a game that appeals to you, the people that are playing it that are available to you may not be the playing it the way the, you'd like to. Or be the, the most re- appealing the people most, to play with. Yeah, or they might be people you really like, and it's still just not that the game isn't for you in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, because it's sense. just really like it's just such a very different kind of aspect and um, of you know like sharing your own imagination and sharing like your ideas about how the world works or how you'd like it mm-hmm. to work etc and so it can be very um it can be weirdly intimate in weird ways um, sure which is can be great but again like these you know <laughs> these are the people you'd be playing with so you need to kind of keep that in mind um i can of course uh oh i one thing i do want to mention you asked about the different kinds of games one thing that's really kind of um, come around lately to my attention that I think is really fascinating is there's been um, this thing called the OSR or the old school renaissance or the old school revival. Uh-huh. And typically this revolves around um, a sort of reworking of the early days of Dungeons and Dragons, the early rule sets. Um, it t- typically it's sort of 
characterized by a more gritty, harder um, player character death is much more likely. In 5th edition, it's quite hard for a player character to die. That's kind of something that doesn't happen as much um, in a game. That's so interesting um, yeah. from edition to edition, which... Yeah, well, I think the early days, like, character death was, like, always high risk, right? Like, you were... <laughs> um, and and that can be that can be really rough if you've been playing that character and building that character for, like, six months, and now mm-hmm. they're dead and gone. Yeah. And so... It's a lot of time. Yeah. And so one thing as a... When I play... As I when I play as a player, I always I like first of all in fifth edition, it's just like I find it frustrating that it's not there's not that kind of stake in play because it's kind of like it's it's harder for characters to die. Um, there's lots of ways for them to be saved. There's lots of like low risk environment, um, which mm. can be fun. But yeah. I typically try not like I play where it's like. I, I don't play where I'm just like, I want this character to die as soon as possible. I try to play where it's like, I want to take the risks that I think would be reasonable where this character might die because things happen. There are surprises. And I want that character to die because I'm not as invested in the character as I am in the story and being mm-hmm. like, oh, that would make sense. Like, you know, my character got stepped on by a hill giant. That makes sense. Like, didn't <laughs> make sense. it, you know? And like, and <laughs> and heroic last effort to like save the party or whatever, you know, great. Um and as long as I'm playing with a um, in a game session where that's acceptable and then also that I can keep playing by, say, like creating a new character that joins the mm-hmm. party or whatever without being like excluded. That's the main thing. Like, it, yeah, I I like to play in an environment where it's like, you know, we all agree ahead of time, like what the deadly level of the game is like. Is there basically no death where you guys are attached to your characters and bad things can happen, but you'll always be able to revive the character? Or are we in a mm-hmm. world where it's like that bad thing might happen and you're OK with it and we're going to have other characters for you to play that are just as fun? Um, yeah. You know, that's. And and that's something that, again, it just depends on who you're playing with. Like, you know, if you're playing with good friends and you guys all kind of agree on that, fantastic. Um, you might be playing in a game where someone's kind of a dick about it and you're just like, oh, this is not going to be that much fun. So, <laughs> you know, try to try to avoid those ones and try to get in on the ones where you're all kind of in agreement about stuff. Um, but the OSR, the... Uh, the um, uh, old school renaissance or renaissance or however the fuck you pronounce that word Mm -hmm. um is this it's there's a lot of really cool um whole new game books that people have created that are third party there's uh old school essentials there's something called dungeon crawl i think or classic dungeon crawl um i'm i'm forgetting some there's some other really good ones but um all of these typically follow the more old school Dungeons and Dragons pattern of gameplay and mechanics and they draw heavily on that and are oftentimes just a reorganization of those rule sets. Um, and the other cool thing is like there's tons of content people have created for it, like whole books. Oh about, God, I'm sure. Like people there's have written just... whole environment books and, and cities yeah. of play and stuff like that. Where do you and, find them? Are they posted online? Do people post them Um, Let's see. So... I mean, where I find them is I read about them in different <coughs> news outlets and postings and stuff like Twitter and, yeah. and um, Reddit and stuff like that. But uh, uh, let me see if I can find some. 
So Wikipedia has a good article on it titled Old School Renaissance. Um, <laughs> and uh, in there, there's um, it talks about styles of play. It talks about um, a couple of references. It's not a, it's actually not that great. Like it doesn't have a lot of the new <laughs> stuff. But um, there's uh there's something called Osiric or OSRIC, which is old school reference and index compilation as a fantasy role-playing game system. It is a remake of the first edition of first edition of AD&D. Um, I think since that version, there's like other, this was released in 2006. So this has been going on a long time. Um, the other kind of cool thing about a lot of these um, other RPGs, and maybe we could do a whole other, podcast about them I could talk about like other games if I did some research but um, one of the cool things about a lot of these games is that many of the creators have released a PDF of the entire book for free Ooh, that's handy it is really handy because it also one thing I really like about that so one game um, that I can recommend is called quest mm -hmm. and you can get this game at adventure.game so that's adventure.game um, this is a similar thing. So Quest has um, a main book that talks about running the game and how to play okay. but, and sort of the environment. And Quest is a very simplified version of Dungeons and Dragons, I would say, or a simplified version of like sort of high fantasy. It, it plays out entirely in theater of the mind. Um, all of the movement stuff is basically your position near and far. So you're kind of like you're close you're near close, you're near far, and you're far. And those okay. are the distances you are from an object or an interaction that you want to do. And so it makes it very easy. You don't need to have maps. You can have maps that are just sort of fun maps that kind of give you a sense of the world, um, you know, depending on who's running the game and where you're playing, et cetera. But sure. um, the characters are very simplified. It's very easy to make characters. It uses, I think, one die. It just uses a 20-side die. So, um, And the die, they use it the way that I like, which is you use the die when you want to introduce some randomness. Um, sure. So so you uh, say something like, oh, if there's like three directions you could go. If you roll a one through a three, you're going this direction. If you roll a exactly, four through... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You can do things like that, or you can say like, you know, we don't know how rickety the stairs are. Like, let's roll a die and see if the stairs <laughs> make noise before you go up it. You know, that kind of thing. Um, sure. Or, you know, in combat very or something. Fun. But yeah, no, it's fun. Um, and it's a very easy game to pick up. So I can absolutely recommend Quest as like a great way to just see, dip your toe in and see if it's something you enjoy. It's something yeah. you can like, you can having never played it or having no one else who's played games before like this, you can get your friends together. It really only takes maybe three of you. You could play with two. Um, and some games you can play solo and we'll talk about that later. But um, anyway, the uh, I think I mentioned that earlier, the solo play game thing yes which is a whole, you did whole thing but um anyway i i just i think it's uh really great like a lot of these third-party companies and they're not even third parties because now they're not really associated with dungeons and dragons right they're just whole new role-playing systems and the authors and the creators of these games um really want people to play and so they make it very accessible like oftentimes they have online resources where it's like you can play today without buying even buying the game and one of the things oh, about nice role-playing games is 
I think people like to buy the books because they like to like in their, for me, oftentimes the book is the solo gameplay version of the game. So uh -huh. like I have books because when I'm playing with my friends, I don't need the books as much. There may be reference manuals, but when I'm alone and I want to play Dungeons and Dragons, I can read through it and dream up new concepts based on the rules and the content that are in these books that are like a yeah. great spark for imagination for these these worlds of imagination. So I like that they're kind of like springboards. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, exactly. They're springboards. And yeah. and the great thing is like, you know, uh, there's so many new available ones and and sometime we'll we'll I'll look through and come up with some recommendations we can talk more about. I think it's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I want to play this game. Yeah. But I don't know anybody besides you. Well, we'll we'll play um I mean we can play virtually, but maybe um we can play some when you come to visit. Yeah. That sounds good. All right. Well, um, I, I'm going to say we should call it unless you have anything else to add. No. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. This is a good one. Um, oh, here's like a weird like sort of tip for living well in hell. Ooh. Uh, one way you can actually go to hell is to, um, if yes. you play Dungeons and Dragons or a similar game, you can, with the right party of players yep. you guys can create an environment where you all get to go to hell and have a, a hellish experience this is true yeah. this is a complete and distinct possibility and you can flavor this however you want um you know you can do the classic sort of sort of christian catholic hell version or you can do a dante's inferno experience or whatever you feel <laughs> like so yeah and you can go walk around in it and you can have check it have out interactions and have yeah have a tour be a be a dude in hell. Be a dude in hell. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Oh, very good. Um, well, yeah, I we can call it. It's we are at about that time. We are about that time. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I uh, I'm just looking at some of my plants in my window, and I'm growing some mugworts that arrived in very um, dormant states of being and now they're flourishing and oh, I'm, I'm super I'm, excited about this they've popped out today yeah yeah i love a good mugwort mugwort some good stuff yep um all right well thanks for the hell tip and thanks for edifying me about dungeons and dragons that was cool yeah yeah that was really all fun right. okay well watch for more episodes if we get our butts in gear and post them yes hopefully very soon <laughs> Okay. Hi, Buster. Hi, Buster. Okay. Bye. Bye, Buster. Bye.